Let me invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. This morning, Philippians chapter 1. I've never met a person who wanted more difficulty in their life. Have you? No one's hoping that they will someday get stage 4 cancer or that they get in a serious car wreck or that their identity is stolen so that the strife in their family is just increased. No one desires greater adversity and I think rightfully so. Instead, we desire a better life, a more comfortable life. Take a minute to imagine with me your life. What it would be like if you got everything you wanted. Can you picture that in your mind? With that picture in your mind, is the gospel connected in any way? If you're like me, your desires do not include a desire for adversity and trouble. But if your desires are in the right place, then adversity, whether there's adversity or not, will not matter. It will just be a footnote to the bigger prize that you're concerned about. And that is not your physical, financial, familial, relational well-being, but it is the greatest prize to see the Gospel advanced. Our focus, when it's on the Gospel, adversity doesn't matter as much. Yes, we still have to face it. Yes, it's still tough. Yes, we long to get away from it. Yes, we long for the next life. But in the big picture, our greatest desire is to see the Gospel advance. So if adversity is what God's going to use to cause the Gospel to advance, then so be it. As Christians, our greatest joy ought to be found in the progress of the Gospel. And when that is the case, adversity will not phase us, will it? Because we happily recognize that the Gospel's greatest advance often comes through trouble. Let me read our text for us this morning. Philippians 1, verses 12-20. through 20. Philippians 1, 12. This is the Word of God. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the Gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
Christ can and should be exalted through our adversity. Christ can be exalted through our adversity. Paul's greatest concern is the progress of the Gospel. And so the fact that he is going through a personal trial, he's in prison, is not of greatest importance importance to him. His greatest concern is for the Gospel. And so he's concerned about the Gospel advancing even in spite of or because of his adversity. So in verses 12 through 18, we see that we ought to advance the gospel through our adversity. Here, Paul shows us, first of all, that the, the gospel advances to unbelievers through our adversity, verses 12 and 13. He begins by saying, Now I want you to know, brethren. Paul begins with this word of encouragement to the believers there in Philippi because apparently they were concerned for him. They would have heard the bad news about Paul, that he had been in prison, about his situation. And they probably heard that he's now under the care of the Praetorian Guard. We'll talk about what that is here, that he's moved away from this house arrest and now he's into a more secure location awaiting his trial before the emperor. And they would have heard about this And they would have been concerned for his physical well-being. But Paul wants them to know that the best thing possible is happening. We could look at Paul's life and say, the best thing possible would would be for you to be out of the the prison, out uh, out of confinement, Paul, so that you could preach more. Paul's saying, no, the best thing is happening. The Gospel is advancing through my imprisonment. Notice verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greatest progress of the Gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. How can Paul say that he's happy with his circumstances? That he's taking joy in it? That it's turned out okay? There are two ways that he knows. He knows that the Gospel is advancing to unbelievers, as we see in verse 13, and it's advancing to believers in verse 14. The first way that Paul knows that the Gospel is advancing through his adversity, his imprisonment, is that unbelievers are hearing and seeing the Gospel firsthand. The natural inclination of the Philippians would be to think that Paul's imprisonment was hindering him from the progress of the Gospel. Perhaps many were even second-guessing him. Maybe some other churches were second-guessing him, thinking that he was foolish to get in that kind of trouble. Maybe he shouldn't have appealed to Caesar. But the Philippians were concerned for Paul himself. And Paul was not concerned about his own circumstances primarily. He was concerned about the Gospel's well-being. And so he encourages the Philippian believers about something that they would also that also would bring them encouragement. And that is that the gospel is advancing to unbelievers. Notice how it's spreading in verse 13. It has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The Praetorian Guard would be like our secret service. They're the elite group group of soldiers who are responsible for the protection of the leader of the nation. For them, Caesar So apparently, Paul has been transferred from his status 
under house arrest in Acts 28 to a place where he's under the care of the secret service group, the Praetorian Guard, so that he could await his trial before Caesar. Caesar was going to find out what's all this commotion about. All these various kings around the area are sending Paul to me, and now Paul's appealed as a result of his Roman citizenship to me to hear his case. What is this all about? I want to hear this man speak. So as Paul gets transferred to this new guard, we can only imagine what the conversation would be like. So, what is this all about? What are you in for? Or, I've heard about you. Why is there such a big commotion over you? The guards would ask him. And Paul would probably respond something like this. I am on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Or, While Caesar may appear to have power over me, my fate may look like it rests in Caesar's hands. My real master is Jesus. He is the living God. Even though to the world, Paul would say, I am in chains under the authority of this Roman Lord, Caesar. I am ultimately under the authority of the Lord of the universe. And throughout his imprisonment, Paul would use his adversity as an opportunity to advance the gospel to unbelievers. One of Paul's great goals in life was to make it to Rome so that he could spread the gospel in this, in this city. Acts 19.21, he says, after I, have seen, after I have been to Jerusalem, I must see Rome. And the Holy Spirit confirmed these plans in Acts 23 when he told Paul, take courage. As you have solemnly witnessed of my cause in Jerusalem, so you will also be my witness in Rome. The church had already been established here before Paul's arrival, but but Paul has a relationship with believers who are here and he wants to see the Gospel spread in this city. In fact, the end of Acts is just a beautiful picture of Paul sitting there in a Roman prison under house arrest. Sitting there and being able to spread the gospel unhindered to tell others about the kingdom of God. And so Paul's greatest concern is not his personal circumstances, or not his personal circumstances. It is the progress of the gospel. And so if the gospel is advancing to this whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else who hears about it, it's all over the news, Paul's happy with that. He's fine with that because that's his greatest concern. The second way that Paul knows that the Gospel is advancing, not just to unbelievers, verse 13, but to believers, notice verse 14, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Not only was the Gospel advancing to unbelievers, allowing them to hear what they hadn't heard before, but also believers were growing in their progress in the Gospel themselves. Believers in Rome and in other churches who were hearing about Paul's imprisonment were becoming more bold for the sake of Christ. They would think, if Paul, in his circumstances, can be bold in the face of this grave danger, certainly we can be bold in sharing the Gospel apart from danger. Imagine what it must have been like when the Philippians first read this letter. When you think of any Philippians that would be in attendance. 
at the hearing of this letter being read for the first time. Think of perhaps people like Lydia, Paul's first convert in Philippi, or the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer would have been thankful for Paul's courage in jail and the fact that he was more concerned about the progress of the Gospel than his own personal circumstances. He's sitting there with Silas, they're singing hymns, and all of a sudden an earthquake comes. And if Paul was most concerned about his own circumstances, what would he have done? He would have let the jailer kill himself, and he and Silas would have gotten out of there. But Paul knew that wasn't the most important thing for him. He wanted to see God advance the Gospel in this city, and so he used it as an opportunity to share the Gospel with this jailer. This jailer would have been sitting here, likely, under the hearing of this letter being written for the first time, or being read for the first time in this church. And he would have been saying, thank God that we have people like Paul who's more concerned about the progress of the Gospel than his own personal circumstances. Isn't this true of us as well? When we see believers in adversity who are using their adversity to boldly proclaim the Gospel, even though they have much to lose, doesn't it make our excuses look very petty and weak? And this is what's happening all over the world when people are watching Paul respond in trial by using it to advance the Gospel. They have far more courage, the text says, to speak the Word of God without fear. Not that they had no courage before, but now they have far more courage because they've seen Paul take his grave situation and turn it into an opportunity to share Christ. Notice in verses 15-17 through 17, the advance of the Gospel through good and bad motives. The advance of the Gospel through good and bad motives. News reaches Paul that some men who were envious of him were spreading the Gospel. Perhaps they were envious of his popularity. And now that he's in confinement, he can't draw as much of a crowd as he could before, and so we're going to take some of his followers. Paul here is a man of character. And he could be sulking in prison about his failure to gain a greater following, his ability, his inability to be able to out, be out there and to, to preach and to see people converted and follow him. And he could have become envious of these men who are speaking the Gospel and now gaining their own followers. But his greatest concern, again, is the progress of the Gospel. So that doesn't matter who they're following. Notice verses 15-17. through 17. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the Gospel. So we do have this group who are doing it for the proper motives and they're trying to advance the Gospel and are concerned for me and so on. But you have this other group who does it out of envy and strife, verse 17, and this group proclaims Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So what's their purpose in this? I think it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be something that really ticks Paul off. Something that really frustrates him. If we preach the gospel when he can't, 
then it will cause Paul distress. And that's what we want. But Paul's not concerned about all that petty um, envy and strife that's going on. His primary concern is whether or not the Word of God is being preached. Let me be clear that these competitors that he's talking about are not preaching another gospel. What do you think Paul would say about them if they were preaching another gospel? A different gospel? Let them be what? Let them be accursed. Galatians 1, 8, 9, we know that. Paul says, if anyone comes to you and preaches another gospel other than the one that I had preached to you, even if it's me or an angel from heaven, or wouldn't be from heaven, but an angel... And let him be accursed. Okay, so what Paul's talking about, we need to be clear about this in verses 15 through 17. He's not talking about people who are preaching a different gospel. They're preaching the truth of the gospel, but they're doing it with the wrong motives. Is that possible? Someone could actually preach the truth about God's Word, about Jesus Christ, about His resurrection. Could they say what's right and yet do it with the wrong motives? Absolutely. And Paul's saying, that's what these people are doing. They're doing it in order to bring distress upon me. But, here's the key, they're actually preaching the Gospel. They're not changing it in order to get followers. They're preaching the true Gospel with the wrong motives. And so here's a good litmus test for us to use when we see these huge ministries of men who are preaching the Gospel. The primary thing at stake is not their motives. That's important. I mean, I think we, we need to be careful that, okay, now it doesn't matter if I do this with wrong motives or not. That is important, but that's not primary. The primary thing that we need to do when we're evaluating these big preaching ministries or anybody's preaching ministry is, is it true? What is the message? A person could preach the truth for the wrong reasons. They could preach out of greed. They could preach out of a sense of competition like what's happening here. They could preach out of a sense of revenge. But ultimately, what is most important is whether the Gospel is preached or not. Amazingly, God can take the true Gospel, however it's being preached, and use it to change people. God doesn't change people through the false gospel, but He can use the true gospel even when it's preached with wrong motives to, to change a person, to bring about spiritual life. Notice Paul's summary in verse 18. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Remember we saw the first week when we were looking through this passage, we saw... I think 12 or 14 times the word joy or rejoice and every time it's connected to the progress of the Gospel. I think this is one of the best ones right here. Whether in pretense or in truth, the Gospel's proclaimed. Christ is proclaimed. And in this, this is why I have joy in my circumstances. My main goal is to see that Gospel advance. Paul wanted to see the Gospel advance through his adversity, and we should as well. The second main point is found in verses 19 and 20. The joy of exalting Christ is found in the progress of the Gospel. 
Our joy in exalting Christ comes from the progress of the Gospel, verses 19 and 20. Paul, I think, expected to be delivered from imprisonment, but he ultimately expected something greater. Look at verse 19. For I know, right before that it says, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul takes time to remind them that he personally believes that he will be delivered. Well, what kind of deliverance is he talking about? Is Paul expected to be released from prison? Does Paul know whether or not he's going to be freed from this? It could be. Look at chapter 1, verse 25. I think he does know that he's going to be released from prison or at least expects to be. Verse 25, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy. Remember, this is where he's kind of debating. I, I would really like to go on to heaven and be with Christ, but to be with you is far better. And so convinced of this, I know that I'm going to continue on for the progress of the Gospel for your sake. And then skip down to chapter 2, verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 23. I think he knows he's going to be freed here shortly. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, that is Timothy, that I myself also, uh, excuse me, to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. Verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So, go back to verse 19, and here's what we're trying to consider. Second line, my deliverance. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What kind of deliverance is Paul talking about? Is he talking about his deliverance from, pri- from prison? I think in the larger context, we might say, yes, that's what he's talking about here in this specific verse. And while I do believe that Paul expected to be released from prison, the, the nearer context suggests that he doesn't know and that the deliverance he's talking about is something else. Look at verse 20 according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. And notice this last phrase. Whether by life or by death. The nearer context, doesn't seem, Paul doesn't seem to be talking about being delivered from prison. In verse 20, he seems to be talking about final deliverance. I know that this is going to turn out for the greater progress of the Gospel and for my deliverance, my final deliverance, so that so we could say, well, wait a second, Paul, how could you be delivered by life or by death? And he's saying, I can be because my final deliverance rests in God and in my salvation that's connected to Christ. If Paul were talking about deliverance from prison in verse 19, then why would he mention death in verse 20? I believe Paul here recognizes that his deliverance, listen to this, Paul recognizes that his deliverance might mean his execution. So here's a point that we keep seeing in this letter. No matter what they do to Paul's body, he's going to have the victory. You can beat him, you can put him in prison, 
You can keep him there for a long time and you can kill him. But even in his death, his greatest adversity, God's going to be glorified in it because Paul is finally going to be delivered. No matter what kind of circumstances come to me, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what it's like, even if it ends in death, God's going to advance the gospel through me. In the middle of 1500s, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary as she was called, hated that many faithful Protestants would not recant of their faith. And so she made it her business, her goal in life, to kill Protestants who would not recant of their faith. In total, she burned 300 people at the stake for their refusal to turn away from Christ. Most of the martyrs were common people, believers who had ordinary jobs like farmers and smiths and merchants. But there were some prominent church leaders who also were burned at the stake by her. Nicholas Ridley was a pastor in London and Hugh Latimer was a pastor in England, in larger England. Queen Mary ordered that both of these men be burned at the stake on October 16, 1555, the day of their execution. And while they were imprisoned waiting this fate, thinking about their coming execution, Pastor Latimer sent a moving letter to Pastor Ridley. He wrote this, There is no remedy but patience. Better it is to suffer what cruelty they will put upon us than to incur God's high indignation. Wherefore, be of good cheer in the Lord with due consideration what He requires of you and what He does promise you. Our common enemy shall do no more than God will permit him. God is faithful, which will not suffer us to be tempted above what we are able. Latimer and Ridley kept this resolve all the way till the end, and they did not recant. And as the executioner tied Latimer and Ridley to the stake and brought the torch near, Pastor Latimer turned to his friend and uttered these last words. He said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and be a man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. You see, adversity, even to the point of death, doesn't matter as long as, as Latimer and Ridley were concerned, the gospel is advanced. Look at the second part of verse 19. See the means by which this final deliverance comes. So if Paul's talking about his final deliverance, that God's going to bring him to glory, that He's going to complete what He started in him, Philippians 1.6. How does this come about? And there's two means that really are connected. It is Second part of verse 19. My deliverance through your prayers and, we could say, through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul was confident of his final deliverance because he knew that believers were praying for him. They weren't praying for his physical well-being primarily. They were praying for his spiritual well-being. And he knew... Also, the second thing, that the Spirit of God lived within him. And so the two things that would be necessary 
And they would bring about His final deliverance, their prayers, and the Spirit's presence. What does this tell us about our responsibility to help people along to glory? What does this tell us about our responsibility to bring people on to God with us? Obviously, understand that we can't save a person any more than we can save ourselves. We can't force a person to be accepted by God. It has to be a work of God that He does in them. But Paul is telling us something very important, that his final deliverance was not going to happen apart from their faithful prayers and apart from the Spirit's presence. That Paul counted on believers praying for him. Do you think our salvation is any different than Paul's? And that yes, it rests in Christ and His finished work, but the means by which God brings us on to glory by faithful believers praying for us and for us as faithful believers praying for other believers. Christians, pray for one another. Pray that God would protect them from Satan. Not so much from the physical world, you know, bad health, all these accidents and so on, but from the spiritual world, from the demons who would love to turn them away from the faith. Pray for one another. This is again why it's so vital for every Christian to be a member of a local church so that they can put themselves under the protection of its leadership. Leadership who is required to watch out for the souls of believers in the congregation. And so that in this membership that your spiritual needs can be cared for by other members. If you're a Christian, then you need people to regularly pray for your soul. I need that. And if you're just freelancing it as a Christian, you're not connected to any church, and you can't enjoy the benefits of becoming part of a Spirit-empowered church. You can't enjoy the presence of the Spirit and the prayers of believers that will bring you on into glory. So, we need to pray for one another. Let me leave you with five points of application this morning. Number one, don't use your adversity as an excuse for sin. Don't use your adversity as an excuse for sin. Are you extremely busy right now? Are you going through a difficult trial? Have you been dealt a bad hand, so to speak? Don't buy into the lie that says, you know, God's going to understand. He'll sovereignly work out everything for His purposes. God will work out everything for His purposes, but He's not going to understand in the way that you say it. As if, Oh, I'll just ignore that sin that you're doing. It's, I understand. You're going through a deep trial. You can sin. You know, it should be fine for me to neglect my responsibility to commune with God and His Word and, and in prayer. It should be fine for me to skip a few services every week. It should be fine for me to indulge in this sin. I mean, after all, I'm facing a trouble that many other people, if not all other people, are not facing And so, don't I deserve a little bit of break from obeying God? If anyone had the right to think like that, it would be Paul, wouldn't it? And yet, Paul doesn't use his circumstances as an excuse for sin. 
Well, because of all these types of things, well, then I can kind of skimp over here with my responsibilities. But instead, he uses his difficult circumstances as a platform for the progress of the Gospel. If God's going to put me on this platform of adversity, that's where I'm going to preach from. That's where I'm going to obey Him. That's where I'm going to bow down and pray to Him. Don't use your adversity as an excuse for for sin. Number two, don't despair in your adversity. Don't despair in your adversity. Do you realize that God might be using your trouble to advance the Gospel in a way that He otherwise would not have? He may be using your trial to increase the preaching of Christ to non-believers, to some unbelievers who otherwise wouldn't have been reached. Like for Paul, how else would the Praetorian Guard have heard about the Gospel? I think people just come knocking on their doors. God's using adversity in Paul to bring about spreading of the Gospel to this unlikely group and perhaps God's doing the same for you. God may use your difficult trial to increase the boldness of other believers as they watch you go through that trial with courage, trusting in God. No, no one's going to to take resolve in their own life and grow in their relationship with God if you're failing in your adversity. If you're not a good testimony of what it looks like to follow God in trouble. If you're quick to abandon Him when all the trouble comes. No one's going to grow in their relationship with God. And so if your greatest concern is your feelings, your your own personal comfort, then when that adversity comes, you don't care if people advance in the progress of the Gospel. But if your concern is the advance of the Gospel, then you're going to make sure that your testimony is one where I'm going to stand up, I'm going to work through this difficult situation and continue to trust God because perhaps God is using my difficult situation to cause other believers to grow in their resolve and think, if that believer is going through that difficult time and standing up for the sake of Christ, how much more should I, who am not going through a trial even close to that, how much more should I stand up for Christ? Do you see? God might be, and I would say wants to use your trial to advance the Gospel to unbelievers and to other believers. Number three, The progress of the Gospel depends upon your response. The progress of the Gospel depends on your response. In some measure, how you respond to your adversity will determine the progress of the Gospel. Don't think that just because you have a trial, it will guarantee that Christ is exalted. Because pagans, I hate to break it to you, they have trials too. There's no exaltation in that. The lesson we learn from this passage is that Christ can be exalted through our adversity. He can be. But it's not a guarantee. It depends in some measure on how we respond to our trial. So when you go through adversity, think of the main thing that God expects of you. It is to find joy in the progress of the Gospel. When our circumstances don't turn out like we plan. When difficulty and trouble come, when we may feel that things could not be worse, 
we need to recognize that there is something far worse than our current situation, and that is the Gospel's advance being hindered, the Gospel being suppressed. That's worse than the circumstances that we're going through. And if we don't recognize that, then we're going to be spiraling out of control with our thoughts and our actions. So, the progress of the Gospel depends in part, in some measure, on our response to it. Number four, deliverance might come by way of physical death. Deliverance might come by way of physical death. Do you realize that God never guaranteed unending physical life? And so we need to recognize that no matter what happens, and even in our death, that God is honored. In the 1950s, five men made an attempt to take the Gospel to the Aka Indians. And they didn't make very much progress. They were all killed. And we look at something like that and say, what a waste. They could have been using their lives. They could have been under greater protection. If they didn't go to a difficult place, a difficult people group, and get themselves killed. They'd have much more to show for it. But you know what the result of that was? Of that courageous mission to these hard people? It resulted in hundreds of young people over the following decades who offered themselves for missionary service because they saw the boldness of these men who went to a difficult place and were willing to spend their life for the sake of the Gospel's advance. Do you know any believers who are standing up under deep trial? What should that do to, to increase your resolve spiritually? Have you considered what kind of things they're going through and then have you considered your own life? That for them, deliverance actually came through death. Number five, God advances the Gospel in our life and in our death. God advances the Gospel in our life and in our death. I think of Acts 4 and 5 where we have three men in prison. James is in prison because of his stand for the Gospel. And Peter and John are in a different prison because of their stand for the Gospel. Two of those three men were miraculously released. And the other was executed. What was the difference? Was James weak in his faith? Is he not praying enough? Did he not trust God enough? Did he mess up somewhere along the way? What was the difference between James and Peter and John? As far as their faith, nothing as far as we know. The difference was God's purposes. See, God determined to advance the Gospel through the life of Peter and James and their ongoing witness, but He determined to advance the Gospel through the death of James. I mean, read through Hebrews 11. And notice all the great men and women of faith. Many of them lived long, productive lives for the sake of God's program. But others, we read at the end, were sawn in two. Others were killed by the sword. Many people went about destitute and lived in 
caves and deserts, uninhabited areas, but all of those, all of these, whether in life or in death, the ones with long lives or short lives, they all lived productive lives because they lived in faith and they weren't looking for what this life had to offer. Their eyes were fixed on the next life. The text says in verse 39 of Hebrews 11, they gained approval through their faith. Both those who had long lives and those who were killed prematurely. You see, God wants to exalt Himself and advance the Gospel through your life and through your eventual death. So are you being complicit with the work of His Spirit to accomplish that purpose or do you have no care in whether or not the Gospel is advanced in your life? When we find our greatest joy in exalting Christ through the advance of the Gospel, it won't matter what kind of adversity comes, whether in life or in death. I rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. Let's pray. Our Father, help us not to put stock in the temporal things of this life the things that pass away. To find our greatest joy in the advance of the Gospel so that in our our life, the Gospel advances. In our prosperity, the Gospel advances. In our adversity, the Gospel advances. And even in our death, may You cause the Gospel to progress. Father, You are all in all. Help us to see more clearly what you value most and to spend our best energy on accomplishing your purposes. May we trust fully in your sovereignty, but may our confidence in your sovereignty, your control, not paralyze us from taking great risks like these five men for the sake of the Gospel. Enliven our spirits by your Spirit. We pray this in keeping with the will of the One who granted us salvation and who is worthy of our greatest acts of service. Amen.